0: The Telegraph. the Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Claire Hubble, and this is Ukraine the Latest. Today, we discuss Putin's ongoing escalation of strikes against Ukraine after a key bridge linking Crimea and Russia was damaged in an explosion on Saturday, October 8th. We dig into why the Kirsch Bridge is so important to Putin and what his furious response means.
1: This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure.
0: Ukraine can win, Ukraine must win, and Ukraine will win.
1: Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians.
0: Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our team's reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis from the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, October 10th, day 229. Today, I'm joined by Associate Editor Dominic Nichols, Correspondent and Editor James Kilner, and Senior Foreign Correspondent Roland Oliphant, who is on the ground in Ukraine. I started off by asking Dom for military updates from over the weekend and this morning.
2: Yeah. Hi, Claire. Hi, everybody. Um, yeah. Busy, busy weekend. So Kirsch Bridge, the bridge linking Crimea to Russia, was subject to a massive explosion, as I think many people have seen on Saturday morning. Various uh, possibilities there. A truck bomb a boat, some sort of special forces raid or a rail accident. Um, I haven't got the time here, and, and I think the time will come to, 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 to look into more depth about what, what actually happened because we simply don't know at the moment. Most, I think most, um, most analysts, most sensible analysts, are saying it was a truck bomb, um, but we will we'll need to come back to that. But, but it, it almost doesn't matter because what, what we do know that happened is that something got through yet yet again a bit like Crimea the, the air attacks on Crimea a few weeks ago something got through there this this massive strategic prize this target that that everyone's been talking about for a very long time that Russia have tried to protect with all these kind of weird magnetic deflector stuff in the water and god knows what else i mean something got through and the bridge was very badly damaged. There's two bridges next to each other, a rail bridge and a road bridge. Each has two spans, or the road bridge has two spans and the rail bridge has two two rail lines on it. Um, one of the road spans has fallen in a certain area, so it is passable by light traffic, although you, know, you wouldn't get me on anything other than a bicycle, maybe not even then. Um, the rail bridge, likewise, supposedly opened again to much much sort of applause. However, it, it has been badly damaged, um, no, no doubt about it, from the images that we've seen. Um, so we don't know at the moment what has happened. Like I said, most most uh, think it was a it was a truck bomb. Um, but the fact that Putin has gone on television and said it was a terrorist act, interesting coming from from him. What we've seen over the last couple of days, um, saying it was a terrorist act, and he's putting it down to Ukrainian secret services. I mean. He, he, the, the flip side of that, I mean, OK, he can attribute it and say it was all those pesky, uh, pesky Ukrainian Nazis again. But all he's, what he's saying is that, that they got in there. They got in there somehow. I can't protect you. He's saying to the people of Crimea and Russia, they are here, they're, they're coming for us, they can, they can get through the defences. I can't protect you. So I, I thought it was extraordinary that he came out quite so, so soon um, with that kind of attribution. Um, so in response then, so that was Saturday morning, There was there had been shelling... Um, or missile attacks around the country, notably in the city of Zaporizhia, which is not not where the actual Zaporizhia nuclear power plant is. This is the the city is somewhat uh, further up the river, so about 20 k's away. Um, but the city of Zaporizhia was was hit over the weekend. That uh, so Zaporizhia and another um, uh, a lot of other cities in in Ukraine were hit this morning. Um, you, the latest figures from the Ukrainian. Uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs is that there were 83 uh, strikes, so missile strikes, drones, um, and we think also uh, also uh, uh, short range ballistic missiles. But 83 launches against Ukraine, of which 43 were shot down, but that still leaves you know 40 that that got through and landed somewhere. Figures at the moment are that there were eight killed. That will—that's undoubtedly an underestimate. There will there will be more, um, but this is across the country. So in, in the capital, Kiev, and then in the west, in, in Lviv and ternopil which is in the in the west of the country, but but um, about a hundred K east of Lviv, um, Dnipro, Zaporizhia, and others. Notably, it's the first striking Kiev for months. Um, it follows on from other strikes. Uh, there were other strikes as well in Kharkiv and throughout the Donbass. Um, so what? What happened in, in Kyiv? We saw that um, one of the major parks in the uh, centre of the city near near University was hit. A road intersection was hit near the Ukrainian special services building, which tasked the Russian state sponsored media outlet as saying that was that was an attack on the uh, on Ukrainian special services for their for their strike on the Kirch Bridge. In which case, are you saying that you, you can't hit a building, a, a very big building in the middle of a city? If you're claiming that you hit the road intersection outside and that's a that's a successful strike, that says something about your targeting and what you consider successful. Um, The glass bridge, the so-called famous glass bridge um, in the again in the over the river in the center of the city was was um, subject to a missile blast. But the, the the very very sort of alarming um, imagery you'll see on social media. The blast actually happens underneath the bridge. The bridge survives intact and there's been social media footage of people going across that bridge um, since then. It it obviously needs to be Needs to be checked and made safe if, it, if it's at all damaged, but it's not, it has not fallen down. Um, there's also blasts in the center of the city. The, uh, the building housing the German consulate was hit. Now, that, uh, unlike an embassy, the German consulate, that's not German soil. So we're not in NATO Article 5 territory, but it does, a strike on a consulate does violate other diplomatic um, relations and consular relations treaties. Elsewhere in Zaporizhia, Apartment building was hit again. That's the third such attack in Zaporizhia in four days. Um, Thirteen were killed yesterday morning. Um, Nineteen were killed on the strike on Thursday. uh, It's thought aircraft attacked Zaporizhia, but again, we're still not entirely sure. Uh, And in Lviv, critical infrastructure was hit, including power to the main hospital. So a number of strikes across, across across the country. We think this has come from... Um, a number of different weapon systems. Leaning heavily on Gustav Gressel here, who's a, um, a, a senior fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations, good guy to follow on. Twitter. He talked about short-range ballistic missiles, in particular Iskander and Toshka u Now the thing about short-range ballistic missiles, they have a very high angle, so they're coming in very steeply, at about sort of 70% or sorry, 70 degrees um, and very high speed, going a mile and a half a second. So coming in very steep and very fast, it's incredibly difficult to shoot those down. Any any surface-to-air missile uh, system or guns or or, or anything trying to trying to stop those getting through, it's very very difficult. Um, they're also firing... Uh, Cruise missiles, so we think the caliber cruise missiles, which are slower at only about 240 metres a second and lower 50 to 100 metres, generally detected quite late because they're very small. They have a low, uh, a very small radar cross section. So radars don't don't really see them until it's it's quite late. And of course, because they're very low, they are um, they can be subject to terrain masking. i.e., They they can hide behind hills and buildings and, and all the rest of it. So very difficult to shoot those down. And there's also drones as well. President Zelensky said that there were some, some drones, which he said were the Iranian Shahid uh, drones, which mean the Shahid 136 drones. Um, for, for ease of reference, I'll call them suicide drones or kamikaze drones. I know people don't like the term, talking about kamikaze or suicide in, in, in response to drones, um, but the point is that they are not there for surveillance and to go home and, and, and some sort of electronic warfare mission. They are there to fly into a target that they see um, with a warhead on themselves. Now, they are the slowest of the lot, about 50 metres a second. They are very low, below radar, uh, and again, subject to terrain masking. Um, and so it's very difficult to see them. They're very cheap. Hence, they can come in, in, in big numbers. So a lot of different... Um, uh, the nature of attack against against Ukraine was quite, quite widespread. Now, in terms of international response, so President Zelensky said that there were dozens of missile, uh, including Iranian Shahids, and he said uh, they have two targets, energy facilities and people. Um, the Russian defence ministry said just over an hour ago in fact an hour and 10 minutes ago said that uh, quote the goal of the strike has been achieved and all designated targets have been taken out and they said the designated targets were energy infrastructure communications facilities and military targets i mean that's just i mean if that's their if that's their aim they've not achieved it because we've seen them strike children's playgrounds we've seen them strike um civilian targets um so yet again it's it's all russia is able to do um they're not able to they they're, they're they are not succeeding on the battlefield so they have to do something else this is just this is just terrorism basically elsewhere around the world the british foreign secretary james Cleverly he has been messaging with Dmitry Kaleva, the uh, ukrainian foreign uh, foreign minister this morning uh, saying that reinforcing the uk's ongoing what is called moral and practical support for ukraine the um, deputy prime minister and minister for foreign affairs of moldova Nuku popescu has said that there were Russian ships in the Black Sea firing calibre cruise missiles, and he has said it's a diplomatic incident because those missiles flew over Moldovan territory. Um, Britain's security minister, Tom Tugendhat, has said said this is a war crime. That accusation has also been picked up by Poland's foreign minister and the EU Commission. And interestingly enough, and I'll just end on this, China's foreign ministry spokesman said, quote, we hope the situation will de-escalate soon. Unquote, which is pretty you know shallow end stuff for for the in response to what's been happening. But for China to come out and say something that's that's clearly that's clearly one sided. I mean, it's not down the middle. I mean, to, to talk about de-escalate today is very much um, through the lens of what Russia's response has been, or not response, but Russia's actions have been. So for China to come out and say that so on, so one sided. And to say it so quickly, I think, is very telling. It really shows the shift, I think, in China's approach to uh, to Russia's prosecution of this activity. Uh, I think I'd better stop there before I run out of breath.
0: Thanks so much, Dom. Why are we seeing Russia strike Kiev once again for the first time in so many months?
2: Because they can't do anything else. Because they, they've, they're saying, I mean, if they used any any accurate missiles here, and I'm not entirely sure they they did they they wanted to save their, save their best stuff for for when it really means something. I mean, look look at what's happened recently. So Putin said this is all about the Donbass. It's all about, in his words, liberating the Donbass. Well, I mean, the Donbass has, has, has ground to a halt. The Wagner group are there. Interesting. a you know, question for another day, are they there so that they're not causing mischief in Moscow as someone's, you know, Prigozhin's private army? Um, but they are in the Donbass. They're bashing their heads against a brick wall at Bakhmut. Now, Today's UK defence intelligence message does say that they are making slow gains there, coming closer to breaking into Bakhmut, but it's still very hard going. So not an awful lot going on in the Donbass. We saw that amazing advance about a month ago uh, from Kharkiv in the north from from, uh, from Ukraine. What did Russia do in response? They had a load of sham referendums that were immediately reversed by the loss of uh, Liman and, and other areas. Down south, Russia in, in the Hazan region um, they've been losing territory, so they come up with missile strikes against Zaporizhia, and yet it's this strike against the Kirsch bridge which has caused Putin to to, to lose his, you know, lose, lose his rag, I should say. Um, I mean, he's gone, he's gone big on this one. Why? Because he's personally linked to it. He opened it in, well, I think the. It the road opened in 2012 and the rail in 2019 or the other way around. I can't remember exactly what. But he rode the first train across the bridge. Um, you know, it's very much personally linked to this. Of course, it also it physically links Russia to Crimea. So it's very symbolic and has great military value as well. So so this was a, this was a significant military target. However, I mean, it's a bit like boiling a frog. I mean, Ukraine had been pushing back on the battlefield and retaking ground from Russia um, and we've all been going, oh, is he getting closer to using a tactical nuclear weapon? And yet, here, Ukraine go and do something different and and, and attack a bridge of great symbolic value. I get it. However, it, it just, you know, is this the moment when Putin goes goes nuclear? I mean, do you really want to turn around and say to your people, well, they bombed my bridge, so I had to use a nuclear weapon? You know, it's just little by little, Ukraine are being, are, are using. I mean, asymmetric is, is too clunky a term, but they are constantly shifting how they are attacking and, and pressing in a different area or a different time or a different scale. And all Russia can do in response. They've got nothing left on the politics because the Western, or rather not, not just the Western clear, there's other countries not in the West who oppose this this ridiculous war. But the, the non, non-Ukrainian um, international alliance seems to be holding up. Putin's lost the Economics, because Europe in particular has looks like it's in a better place, not a great place, but a better place on the energy um, and able to get through a cold winter. Uh, and so all he's got left is the battlefield and he's going nowhere. So all he can do is chuck heavy metal around. And, uh, OK, they say it's energy, infrastructure, communications and military targets. All they're trying to do, all they're able to do, all they are able to do is to try and terrorise the population in, a, in an effort to get the Ukrainian leadership to to break and the resolve of the political and military leadership to break at the site of so many civilian losses. And I, I just simply don't think that's going to happen. But this is, this is all that Russia have got left in the locker, terrorism against civilians.
0: Thank you so much for that, Dom. I'd like to come to you next, please, James Kilner, because I understand that you've been on the desk over the weekend covering events as they unfurled for the Daily Telegraph. Uh, We touched on earlier a little bit the different theories surrounding the Kirsch Bridge. Could you provide a bit more detail about what those are, please?
1: Right, Okay. So it was an incredibly busy weekend on the Moscow desk for the Telegraph. Uh, The Kirsch Bridge was hit around 6 o'clock on uh, local time on uh, Saturday morning. And um, within a few hours, Russian officials... Speaking off record, so this is before the Kremlin whipped them into line, saying this was a Ukrainian attack, etc. Uh, a few hours later, officially, they said it was a truck, truck explosion, which Dom has already mentioned. And then there was sort of silence for 24 hours until Putin popped up. He'd flagged up uh, an emergency cabinet meeting today. but then he suddenly popped up last night at about nine o'clock uh, local time. And said in in a thirty three second um, video which I saw, and he he all of a sudden blamed Ukraine for this attack. Whereas before the, the the official commentary from Kremlin had just been you know not to apportion any blame. And as soon as he said that, it was clear that there was going to be a major escalation, and this is what we have today, unfortunately. As far as uh, theories about how the bridge was actually attacked. I think if you look at the video, there is a large truck going over the bridge at the time of the explosion. And um, it could well have been this truck. Other people have said it might have been a missile strike. But to our knowledge, Ukraine doesn't have super long range artillery pieces which could hit the bridge. The bridge is about 190 miles behind the front line. And as I understand it, their longest artillery pieces can only hit about seventy-five miles behind the front line. So that wouldn't work out. Um, an airstrike is is ruled out. Some people have said it might have been a, a mine under the bridge, but I mean that that would be an incredibly audacious, difficult attack to pull off. So if it was a Ukrainian special forces operation, it, it could well have been this truck. The Ukrainians have not claimed responsibility, although the New York Times did quote a senior source at the weekend, an unnamed senior source in the Ukrainian government, saying that its intelligence agency had been involved in planning the operation. I'm not quite sure what that means. They didn't go any further than that. And if you remember, it was an incredibly intense day on Saturday. Literally within about an hour and a half or two hours of the blast on the Kirsch Bridge being announced, the Ukrainian post office had issued this commemorative stamp of the destruction of of the bridge with a drawing of what appeared to be Kate Winslet and Leonardo DiCaprio in that iconic Titanic embrace from the 1997 movie, when they're standing on the prow of the Titanic moments before it hits the iceberg and sinks. And in in the picture of, of the commemorative picture issued by the Ukrainian post office, they're standing on the edge of this destroyed bridge, looking out, and behind them, uh, the bridge is smouldering. So, I mean, I think the analogy there is the hubris of the Titanic, which was meant to be unsinkable, went down in 1912 uh, on its maiden voyage, and the hubris around the bridge, Putin's bridge, which was meant to impose an uh, indestructible link between Crimea and Russia when it was opened in 2018. If you remember, Putin annexed Crimea in 2014, a major highlight in his 22-year reign.
0: Thank you so much for that, James. So... Putin has confirmed the strike saying that the attack on the bridge was terrorism and uh, Russia will meet such attacks with a similar response. Um, I was just wondering what European leaders had said in response to this and what they had said about Russia's amped-up missile attacks so far.
1: Over the weekend people were the the European leaders were quite quiet, although the Estonian foreign minister did. Let slip that he thought it was a Ukrainian special forces attack. Dom obviously briefed us and, and updated us on on the British government's response, and I think we can expect Western leaders to hold the line and can condemn Russia's attacks. Obviously, as Dom said, Putin is raining missiles down on soft targets, and it seems to me that every time he escalates things, so so this weekend, this weekend, and today's. Another shift, another turning point in this seven and a half month conflict. And every time that Putin intensifies his operation, last night and, t- and today, two weeks ago in mobilisation, back in April, he, he you know he targeted Donbass, etc. Every time he does something like this and shows his hands, he almost makes himself weaker at the same time because he lashes out, he sends missiles over, you know, he mobilises, whatever, whatever it is. And it ends up being uh, sort of a Potemkin effort. The mo- mobilisation went down incredibly badly in Russia, triggering about a quarter million three hundred thousand million, 300,000 men to flee the country. This, you know, he's lashing out again, uh, raining down cruise missiles on Kyiv. And, you know, seen seen from his allies in Central Asia and the South Caucasus, where he's, where, where, where he's seriously lost a lot of credibility, they will be looking at this going, this guy is completely mad and we don't want anything to do with him. He's meant to be in Astana, the capital of Kazakhstan, on Friday for a chummy meeting, and uh, so far that meeting has not been cancelled. It would be a big thing to be, for it to get cancelled, but I'm sure the Central Asians are absolutely dreading it. At Putin's birthday on Friday, he had his 70th birthday last Friday, it was a really dour, miserable affair. He pulled together some of the Central Asian leaders but not all of them. And some of them made their excuses like the Kyrgyz president wasn't there, which is an incredible poke in the eye, really. Ten years ago, when he had his 60th birthday, it was all adulation and celebrations and towns in Russia renaming themselves after him, people climbing mountains in his honour, videos being being short, you know, music videos being short, uh, marching through the streets. Now it's, it's completely flat. Even his supposed allies in his, in Russia's former vassal state are going. This guy is absolutely toxic. We don't want anything to do with him.
0: So, just going back to what you were saying about the Russian mobilisation effort, we've spoken about how that it's widely unpopular in Russia previously. I was wondering if you have any updates on the shape of that mobilisation effort.
1: So, the mobilisation effort we've been tracking quite carefully at the Telegraph and. He was desperate. You have to to put this in the context. He was desperate to avoid mobilising Russia. This is the first time that Russia, or Russians rather, I should say, have been mobilised since World War II in 1941. Previously to that, they were mobilised in 1914. So the context is absolutely enormous. The two previous times were in world wars. Is this a world war? He, He still continues to call it a special operation and not a war. So... The vol- voluntary mobilisation, which they tried up until two or three weeks ago, pulled in a few people, a few thousand people, we, were either sort of fried to sign up to it or felt some sort of calling to, to, to volunteer, et cetera, or, or were tricked into it. And it did pull in some recruits, but it, but it clearly wasn't effective. And with the Russian army being rolled back around Kharkiv in the northeast and Kherson in the south, and then Putin suffering a very uh, humiliating conference down in Uzbekistan in in September, where he got harassed by Chinese and Indian leaders for for his war. He went for it. He went for broke. He was under pressure from the hawks in the Russian government, from military bloggers who say, you've got to take it more seriously, you've got to mobilize. And he went and did it. But as soon as he did it, the cat was out of the bag And ordinary Russians who would just been trying to ignore the war, trying to get on with their lives, were suddenly extremely worried that they were going to get dragged into it. And uh, I think it was last week, end of last week, the Kazakh government said that 200,000 people had fled into Kazakhstan in the previous two weeks since Putin's mobilisation order. The border between Kazakhstan and Russia is incredibly porous. They share economic and diplomatic, strong economic and diplomatic ties. Russians don't even need a visa to cross that border. It's the longest continuous border in the world. So they poured over there from places in the Urals and in Siberia. So not be, there were some from Moscow and some people, but these are mainly sort of lower middle class, I suppose, or slightly less well-off Russians who who, who live in, in mining towns and steel towns and Urals, that sort of type thing. Others took airplanes to Georgia or drove down to Georgia through the North Caucasus if they could do that. I spoke to someone at the weekend, uh, a woman who has relatives in Russia. She's Russian. And she said that her aunt was hiding one of her, her daughter's husband, who had been called up. He'd been received his mobilization papers. He'd fled his village and was hiding in this woman's house. And meanwhile, police had been around his village and dragged, all, you know, and called in all the men and taken them off to mobilize. The Russian Min- Ministry of Defense will tell you or tell anyone who wants to listen that they've mobilized 200,000 men in, in the past two weeks, but there's been no real evidence of this. And we do know that hundreds of thousands of men have fled. There have been some shocking videos of the drunkenness. Of the state of the men who have been mobilised, of the contempt that they've been treated with, the fact that they have to buy their own bandages, they're not expecting much training. They have to buy their own food. There's been reports of, uh, you know, them being mugged for their mobile phones, this sort of thing. And I think that message is coming back to the Kremlin. Putin today I saw has made comments live on TV again, blaming officials for the useless and terrible way they've, they they mobilise people and, and the amount of fear that they've spread. And his propagandists, the two propagandists on TV are also blaming officials for they, the terrible way they, they've handled the mobilisation process. This is a typical Russian-Soviet way of dealing with uh, systematic problems. The knee-jerk reaction from officials... Uh, bureaucrats, it's to blame other people. They they will try and protect the leader to the nth degree and instead they will will, will blame over-officious bureaucrats or regional officials, that sort of thing, and they're doing it again here. Final thing, mobilisation. I wrote a story the weekend saying that um, this poor chap who's confined to a wheelchair, very disabled, he's received mobilisation papers. He He's in a wheelchair. He can't even make it to his mobilisation interview, which is on the fourth floor of a, of a building without a lift. This is, this is, you know, an insight into where Russia is. It's a very dysfunctional place when you scratch away there. When, when you get away from central Moscow, central Pittsburgh is incredibly dysfunctional.
0: Just going back to what you were saying about the flailing allyship uh, for Putin in Central Asia, who is left supporting Putin on the world stage?
1: I think Putin, I mean, he's got the Syrian... Syrian leadership were obviously backing him because he he propped up um, he propped them up. Um, North Korea w- was was still back him. The important moment for Putin on the world stage, and, and I can't stress it enough, was this meeting in Tashkent in September, meeting the Shanghai Corporation Organization (SCO), which is um, a military economic group focused on Central Asia, which is headed by both China and and Russia. When they set this up, it they had sort of an idea of a sort of a setting up a bipolar world, a sort of economic military group that could face up to NATO and, and the US. It's morphed over time and now also includes India, Pakistan, Iran is an observer member. And other, other, other countries are wanting, wanting to get involved as well. The important thing here, and including Turkey, the important thing here is that um, when Putin went to this meeting, In Samarkand in in September, he hadn't mobilized yet and he hadn't quite lost it. But when he was there, Putin publicly apologized to Chinese President Xi when he was there. And Modi, the Indian leader, gave him a public dressing down about the war. This was an incredible front to Putin. And the next week, he, he called for mobilization. It was like no one has any influence over Putin now. He'd been blacklisted by everyone and he was just going to go for it. And I think this is where we are. And I think historians will look back at that meeting in Samarkand and will pinpoint it as a moment where Putin realised that he was so alone that he might as well just go for broke. break.
0: Thank you very much for that, James. Uh, next, I would like to come to Roland Oliphant, the Telegraph's reporter on the ground in Ukraine. Roland, I hope you're staying safe and well. Could you tell us a bit about where you've been and what you've seen over the last few days, please?
3: Yeah, so I'm in. Um, I'm currently in the Donbass. I was up in Kharkiv for a while, and we came down to um, we came down to Donetsk region yesterday. I mean, the, the the irony to get it out of the way. First of all, the irony of today is that you know I'm sitting about twenty miles. Maybe less than twenty miles from uh, one of the most active parts of the front line, Bakhmut, where there is a, an ongoing Russian offensive, not a very successful one, but they're they're pushing forward. And I mean, it's been incredibly quiet. I mean, we've been we, we've been watching everything this this you know rain of terror falling down on on Kiev and Dnipro and Zaporizhia and and everywhere else. Um, uh, where you know down on the battlefield or, or, or close to the battlefield, you know nothing. Um, we had one uh, that there was a strike last night that hit Slavyansk um, just up the road, which is a, you know, a storied town of the Donbass, which I'm sure listeners are familiar with that was hit by, I don't know. I mean, we've just been there. We've spoken to, to one of the guys whose whose sister-in-law was killed last night. Um, The, the house across the road from his is just, it's vaporized. Um, So it was not, you know, a grad rocket or something something big maybe maybe it was a cruise missile maybe it was a ballistic missile um anyway so one o'clock in the morning last night in Slavyansk, they dropped something big on you know a single story residential building flattened it killed um four people and um, civilians but apart from that um strangely enough it's 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 quite quiet um near the front um what have I been up to in the days before that? So I'm not sure when I last spoke to the podcast, really. Um spring up to speed. We, we were up in Kharkiv kind of picking up the pieces from the offensive there and, and the aftermath. There's just, there's so much going on um in the background. It was just a very, very kind of fruitful place to be um for a journalist. We last week, we went over the Oskill river Um to the you know towards the front edge of the ongoing Ukrainian offensive, which is now probably no longer the Kharkiv offensive, it's becoming the Luhansk region offensive because they've they've crossed the border and the administrative border in several places. Um, pushing forward, we spent the day with the artillery section of a mechanized brigade um, out there and talked to the soldiers. Um, and you know the, the kind of it's the second time I've spent the day with an artillery unit in this war and the first time was in may during the uh the battle around izum um when things were going pretty pretty grim for the ukrainians really and the the change in mood is is kind of remarkable i mean the kind of the sense of confidence that people have um so you know aren't you worried about counter battery fire we're always worried about counter battery fire but right now the russians are so concentrated on on holding back our infantry um, you know, their artillery is distracted, and so they're not answering us very often. Um, you know, th- th- this is a unit that had fought in in the Donbass um, offensive in in May and in June. I mean, they they knew what they were talking about. They'd seen, um, you know, they'd been up against Russian artillery that had just been, in their words, just dropping everything to just burn out an entire field, an entire forest. And they said, that's just changed, like the Russians are... They've been much more careful with their artillery, much more careful with the number of shells they're firing. So the Russians are now trying to fire at specific targets, and they're not just wasting ammunition like they used to. And um, they said the Russians are also sending over fewer drones. It used to be an absolutely constant presence. They've noticed that the number of drones coming over has, has dropped off. Um, and there's, I don't know, I mean, it, yes, it's anecdotal yes, it's one part of the front where the Ukrainians have enjoyed success. It's not, it's not down in Bakhmut. Um, but the, the sense of confidence and the sense that the tide has just so dramatically turned in this war was, um, you know, it was it was palpable. Um, so we did that and then the other day we, we, we were coming down to um, uh, to Donbass and we drove through the kind of the absolute wasteland left after the, um, you know, the battles in kind of northeastern Etsk region and, and southeastern Kharkiv region going into, going to Luhansk. So all these places you've heard about, you know, Leman, Svetogorsk, um, all these places. um, It is, it is a wasteland out there. I mean, I mean, villages literally reduced to rubble. Um, Most of the civilian population has, vanished um at quite quite remarkable quite extreme levels of destruction um actually around there um so so that's where we are um we came to report this part of the front because we felt like it was being neglected um and and woke up this morning and well you know what happened this morning
0: so you're referring to the dispatch you wrote for us last week. Uh, the tide of war has shifted and the Russians are far less brave. And you you said just then um, that the feeling was that the Russians were running out of missiles, that there were fewer drones sent over. And I assume there was kind of a, a feeling of hope among people on the ground. I just wondered if that has changed since the events of...
3: I mean, I, I, I highly doubt it. I mean look the the point of what happened today there are several points to it you know one is to try and intimidate the ukrainian public and the ukraine military and say look you know your president zelensky hasn't made you any more safe you know no matter how many kind of big victories you have that you 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 crow about what you've done in herson and in kharkiv well we can still hit kiev um, and we're going to hit your energy infrastructure and winter's coming and and you know, th- this kind of message of terror. And that's not going to crack the Ukrainian people because they've been, you know, living, they've been facing, you know, what they consider to be a, a war of annihilation since since February. Um, so the idea that that's going to undermine Ukrainian morale, um, I think is it's laughable, to be absolutely honest. Um, with my, my best, you know, my most objective, dispassionate journalist hat on, it is just it's not it's not credible um I mean perhaps they can maintain it you know and keep on this level of, of 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 missile strikes across the country day after day week after week, week after week maybe you'd see some kind of shift but i i'm I can't see them managing that um to be honest um and i I kind of feel like you know there's there's a reason there is a reason that you hit kiev there is a reason that you hit you know, Dnipro and you make it. You make a big, big show of it, and it's because you're just not winning on the battlefield. I mean, they're just they they, they are not winning on the battlefield. They're not in a position to win on the battlefield. They're, you know, they they've lost a lot of men. They've lost a lot of equipment. Um, you know, the, the just the wind is at the back of is, is, of, of the Ukrainians, and um, they just, you know, they're in trouble. They're basically in trouble. Um, And so, you know, this is a way of a way of trying to intimidate people, um, I suppose, and a way of getting some revenge um, for what happened on the Kerch Bridge, which is which was an incredibly politically sensitive target in Russia and a way of kind of assuaging the Russian, um, you know, the Russian hard right. You know, the people on Telegram kind of saying you haven't been prosecuting this war hard enough. And some of them are really happy. Right. So Ramzan Kadyrov. The head of chechen this morning saying finally i'm 100 percent happy with the uh with the special military operation and things like that and you have uh, alexander Kotz from um comes from Moscow, saying well we can only hope that this is a this isn't a one-off this is a new way of prosecuting the war and we're going to go for every element every the very depth of the um of the ukrainian state until it collapses so you know though, those people are pleased and it's a stop to them but i i do not see this changing the general course of the war. And the general course of the war at the moment is towards a Russian defeat.
1: Ronan, can I just ask a quick question, please? Um, you did a great report for us on Saturday about the kursh Bridge. Is there a sense of the morale boost among the Ukrainian forces and the Ukrainian population where, where you've been from the explosion on the bridge? And is there a sense of what... Of how symbolic the Kerch Bridge is as a symbol of the Kremlin's hold over Crimea.
3: Yeah, I think I think definitely seeing a big bang on the Kerch Bridge and seeing it—you know—it wasn't completely destroyed. It's it's one lane, right? One one of, one of the road lanes. Um, but it so hitting the Kerch Bridge has been something that kind of the Ukrainian the Ukrainian cheerleaders on on the internet have been going on and on about, um, you know, since the beginning of the war. And and there's always been this speculation about when and if, and you'd have, you'd even have, um, you know, kind of Ukrainian officials trolling about it in, you know, in the months before this. So there's a video you'll see that some Ukrainians share on Twitter. I'm pretty sure it was shared by some Ukrainian official. I can't remember who. Months and months ago of this, you know, there's the Kerch Bridge and the camera kind of pans out and there's a kind of, a, a lilo or some kind of you know inflatable swimming device and parked on top of it as a high mass launcher you know the, the threat has always been there um and i think the fact that they were able to do it um was a great morale boost you know people were like well done lads um and 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 not just demonstrating that you're able to do it but you know the fact it happened um it hits. It hits two things. It hits a really important military supply route. It is a, it is a really important logistical bottleneck. There is a very practical reason for hitting that bridge, um, and it is also there. There's no, you know, there's no way of putting it in more polite terms. Really, it's one in the eye um, for for Vladimir Putin. It, it's his bridge. This is the bridge that Putin built. All right. This is his triumphal arch and it symbolizes it symbolizes so much it symbolizes russia at the peak of its power it symbolizes russia's ability to do things that the soviet union couldn't you know he's always always you know putin's russia laboring under the the memory of the soviet union trying to get back to that greatness well they never managed this but you know what putin built the longest bridge in europe across the Kerch straits which even the Soviet Union didn't achieve to do, and it is the longest bridge in Europe, and they did it in a few years, and they did it because, you know, in despite of Western sanctions, and Vladimir Vladimirovich drove the first truck across it. You know, it's a it's a triumphal arch and it and it symbolised the permanence of the twenty fourteen Crimean annexation. So if you hit that, you're saying, you know, it's an insult to Vladimir Putin. Um, and you're also bringing into question in a very, very visceral way, um, you know, the Crimean annexation. Until this war began, that was basically a done deal. The, you know, everybody knew that Crimea was not coming back to Ukraine. Now, that is not clear at all. Right, Crimea is now basically back in play. It's quite possible Vladimir Putin is going to see the reversal of his greatest foreign policy triumph, which was bringing you know Crimea home, and and that was what was going to get him his his chapter in the book of gatherers of Russian lands, alongside Peter the Great and Catherine the Great and and whoever else. Um, with this invasion, he's now about to lose that. It, it's absolutely remarkable. So yeah, I mean, I think I think the symbolism. The symbolism of that strike cannot be overstated, and that tells us why Putin's response has been so violent.
1: Can I ask one quick follow-up question? I, I mean, I agree with all that. I think that bridge is so sim- symbolic, and and the reaction has been so fierce. Um, it's clear that Putin took it massively personally on this really important subject of the supply line to the southern front of to, to Russian forces around Kherson. And I know this is a bit speculative, Roland, but you'll have a It was a very good view on it. As far as I know, I think the railway, or at least most of the railway, is still out of action on the bridge, and half the road is out of action, obviously. If that supply line is not up and running properly, and if Russia is forced to bring supplies to its units around Herson uh, along the very dangerous and and long routes uh, through occupied parts of Ukraine, do they have any chance of holding it against Ukraine's offensive?
3: I think the logistics are really important. These these are surmountable problems, I think. I, I don't I don't think it's an absolute death blow. Um I think people want to say, aha, we have cut the strategic, you know, the strategic linchpin and that's it, everything collapses. I mean there's there are always workarounds, right? So, you know, one one lane of that road bridge is still operating. Um and I think I mean they were they were saying the other night that, you know, they were gonna run the railway anyway. Um you know, although there's questions about how badly damaged the steel is, and and all of that, um, there are air links to Crimea. There is the ferry; it's not ideal. Um, and then you've got the. Um, I've just opened the map, so you've got the M fourteen highway via Mariupol and Berdyansk right, into Melitopol. Um So that's your road link. Um, your rail link is a little bit further north and, and and closer to the front. But they've there are options and there are workarounds, and I mean we've seen think back to the Ukrainians in let's say at Mariupol for example right you know besieged no way through somehow god knows how they were being able they were, they were they were flying helicopters very low you know across the sea of Azov and getting stuff in um same in you know several they were they were bringing supplies in on kind of you know rope pulley systems across the river after the bridges had gone down um and they held on for a while so you can you know, I, I would be wary of seeing this as an absolute, you know, that this is the death blow, this is the linchpin, and suddenly everything falls down. If if the will is there and the determination is there, you know, there are workarounds. But there's no question that it's – that doesn't mean it's not seriously, seriously bad news. I mean, you know, Crimea was the route, right? So so all the troops that were rushed into Kherson um, a, few, a couple of months ago, we knew that the Ukrainians were getting ready for this offensive, and then suddenly – we spotted um or actually i should say conflict intelligence team who are a um uh, an independent uh, a bunch of um three thinking russians um who do open source intelligence they're the guys who first spotted this huge build-up of troops coming through crimea and they they were shoveled up to to bolster the herson defense so crimea really is you know the route for herson and you know say they hit it again say they do cut that bridge then then yeah then then i think real trouble
0: Thank you for that, Roland. James, I understand you have some thoughts on Vladimir Putin's appointment of a brutal and corrupt new military chief. What can you tell us about this new general and what can we deduce from his appointment?
1: Right. Thanks, Claire. Um, This also happened on Saturday morning, this incredibly busy Saturday that we had. And it happened about two or three, four hours after the explosion on the Crimea Bridge, the Kirsch Bridge. The Kremlin suddenly announced that they 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 promoted Sergei Surovikin to become overall commander of Russian forces in uh, Ukraine. This was a position that appears to have been left vacant since about July, when the previous guy fell out of favour. Surovikin, like a lot of the top generals in Russia, really earned his 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 stars, if if you like. In Syria, in 2017, 2018, when Russian forces carpet bombed Aleppo into the ground, killing thousand people, forcing thousands of people to flee, etc., it was an easy, brutal victory. It was a bombing campaign, old school bombing campaign that we'd seen in Grozny, etc. Now, this chap, um, Surovkin, he was the longest-serving Russian general in Syria normally the russian generals rotated they did about 3 month tours and Surovkin was obviously impressing putin and he did 9 months in one stint and he has been named in by various human rights organizations and by the british ministry of defense as particularly cruel and particularly corrupt etc his tenureship of the of, of the russian forces his leadership of the russian forces in syria also coincided with some of the alleged gas attacks on Syrian opposition towns. I'm not I'm not saying the, the Russians perpetrated those attacks, but they were allies with people who 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 apparently did. And Sudovakin himself has a sort of he's he's called corrupt and, and cruel by the British government and he himself has a very patchy um, history. He'd, in 1991. In the chaos of of the end of the Soviet Soviet Union, he was he was commanding some soldiers in Moscow in August 91, and he ordered um, them to open fire on anti government protesters. Three people were killed, and and he was he was briefly arrested and may have spent some time in prison. So he, his capacity to to take tough actions was earned as a young lieutenant. Four years later, in 1995. He was arrested again, this time for stealing and trying to sell weapons when he was at a staff college in Russia. Uh, again, he was um, uh, sent to prison, but then that was overturned. Apparently, he was framed for something, although people aren't, aren't, aren't convinced by that. Essentially, what Putin has done here is turned to one of his most ruthless, his most dependable, his most hardcore, hardcore um, general and said, get on with it. And various sources, various media groups, have been saying that he is now given a to free hand in Ukraine to do anything he wants, other than press that nuclear bot- button. And obviously, uh, today's attack on Kiev um, is is one of his first his first acts. Importantly, he was in charge of something called the Aerospace Division within the uh, Russian military. This was formed in about 2016, I think, um, 2017, 2016, and it was a combination of the air force, um, some of aerodynamics and, and space um, divisions within the, the military. And it was, and and he was given overall command of this. And it was warplanes mainly today from the Caspian and the Black Sea region, which would have fired a lot of these missiles at
3: Kiev.
0: Thank you so much for that, James. Roland, if I could come to you, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with?
3: I, I kind of wouldn't be distracted. It sounds horrible to say don't be distracted by the horrific thing that's just happened to Kiev and other, and other cities. But I honestly don't see that shifting the course of this war. There are so many fundamentals, so many dynamics that are going Ukraine's way and and against Russia's. I think you should still be be focused on on those fundamental issues this is a very very bloody very very gruesome distraction but it it does not get vladimir putin out of the hole he is in
1: i agree with roland basically i think it's going to get a lot bloodier with uh... Sudovikin in charge and Putin lashing out, but I I want to reiterate that the point I tried to make earlier that every time that Putin does lash out, every time he says I've had enough, I'm now going to go more hardcore, he shows his hand and he looks weaker, and I think we're going to see this uh, process continue. He's 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 shown his hand again. Uh, people will ride this out. It's going to be terrible. Putin will end up looking weaker. It may escalate again and again, but I think every time he does that, he gets back further and further into a corner and he loses credibility, allies, etc. And this is only going to go one way.
0: Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. Ukraine The Latest was produced today by Louise Wells and on Twitter, Gemma Farrell.